This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic, where we explore topical issues through in-depth analysis, commentary, and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the unique experiences and opinions of our diverse community. Today, we're discussing an international deep sea mining campaign that's made its presence known in the capital. We'll hear from an abolitionist organization and how they're fundraising with plant trimmings for Prisoners Justice Day. We'll take you to a disability justice poetry showcase and mark the end of this year's Chamber Fest. I'm Lauren Rolston, and this is The Mosaic for August 3rd on CHUO 89.1 FM. you're one of the people left waiting at a bus stop during the city's transit disruptions, then maybe you've noticed a particular ad campaign. These ads can be found in bus stop vestibules and are a part of a campaign against deep sea mining. They show pictures of creatures from the depths along with messages like keep the deep sea weird and I'm not an alien, I live here too. The campaign comes as the International Seabed Authority or the ISA held meetings through late July. For the first time in ISA history, countries formally discussed the growing call for a pause on deep sea mining. They'll ultimately decide if mining can go forward without regulation. Last month, Canada joined the list of countries standing against deep sea mining. CHUO's Arya Gunde has more on the ISA meetings and the impacts of deep sea mining. The deep sea has become the new frontier for humanity's progression. As the world becomes more technology dependent, The metals used to make electronics increase in demand. Polymetallic nodules containing nickel, copper, and cobalt are found in large deposits on the ocean floor. Mining companies have recently shown an interest in extracting the nodules as an alternative to land mining and its consequences. The nodules rest loosely on the ocean floor, making them very easy to extract. The mining process involves sending a rover down to scoop the nodules up with a method similar to potato farming. Climate activists raise the point that humanity knows very little about what effects deep-sea ecosystems have on Earth's climate. Mining there will introduce noise, light, and dust to an environment typically void of any of them. Many organisms rely on specific deep-sea conditions to survive, and mining is sure to disturb their habitat. Governments, through the International Seabed Authority, are still drafting regulation to carry the practice out at scale. So far, all deep-sea mining has been unregulated. Canada recently revealed its stance on the issue by calling for a moratorium on deep-sea mining until it has proper regulation, vindicating some global activist efforts. A moratorium is a temporary suspension of activity until its issues are resolved. So far, 21 countries have agreed to a pause or a ban on the practice. Now, deep-sea mining is a truly international issue. For humanity, it's a chance for genuine cooperation. Right now, the same people who run the environmentally devastating mines on land are looking at the ocean as just another money grab. We've already seen the political instability this mentality has led to in regions like Venezuela, the DRC, Iraq, and many more. The last thing we need is for wars to be fought over who controls the ocean floor and for Joe Biden to tell us how Aquaman has weapons of mass destruction that he plans on using to destroy the West. Since the resources in the nodules are essential to the global supply chain, we should urge the government to distribute them equitably. While setting this up would require more time, it will give us a chance to develop a method of extracting the nodules that is harmonious with the earth. In Ottawa, I'm Arya Gunde coming to you from CHUO.
Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, or CPEP, is raising funds to support people recently released from prison. They're collecting donations for Prisoners' Justice Day, coming up next week on August 10th. On Saturday, CPEP held a fundraising event, blending activism and awareness with cultivating plants. The fundraiser occurred at the Arlington Five Cafe back patio, where the group set up a table to sell various plant trimmings. There was also a raffle and items for sale like t-shirts, prints, and pins, all from local businesses. The event, called Propagations for Abolition, was organized by CPEP's Emily Waters. I spoke with Waters before the event to discuss how the group's activism has resonated with the community and their plans for Prisoners' Justice Day. Here's the conversation that we had over Zoom. So you're an organizer for the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. I would love it if you could tell me a little bit more about what that project means. Like, what's the goal? Yeah, so for CPAP, it's about educating and making active change towards the ultimate goal of abolition. So that's through like educating on the harms of incarceration, the harms of prison and policing, and trying to do work within the community, working with folks who have been criminalized and making sure we amplify their voices, really advocating and supporting those who have been criminalized. Other initiatives, like right now, we're currently um, in Kempville. We're trying to stop a prison from being built. So they're currently trying to build a prison in Kempville, which is without any prior consultation to those who lived in Kempville. Also, a prison is just not necessary. An entirely new prison that's going to take millions of dollars away from like investing in actual community safety and healthcare and education. So it's about kind of just informing folks or like, trying to disrupt that process of the expansion of the carceral system. And if you like, take me back to when you joined, like how long have you been with the group and what made you want to join? Back in my undergrad at Carleton, I was in criminology and I had heard of CPAP. I think this might have been around the, just the starting of COVID and the murder of George Floyd and everything like that, where it was very much like a very present prison and policing issues around that were, were being more discussed and it was more prominent. So I was taking an interest and that's kind of where I first learned about abolition and exactly what that meant. And I started to want to learn more. And I think I just found CPAP through Instagram and I started following them and I really wanted to get involved because I wanted to participate and try to make concrete action. And, and the group is like super engaged with the community, hosting these events and conducting research and publishing reports. But in particular, we're talking about the Propagation for Abolition event that's going on tomorrow. I would like it if you could just tell me a little bit about that. So I also, alongside my interest in abolition and my passion towards abolition, I also love plants. That's my other passion. So I work at Plant and Curia, which is a plant store in Ottawa. And in the past years, I've like grown my hobby and everything around plants. And I found that there's actually kind of like an overlap in those communities of like folks who love plants and like social justice. I actually held this event this time last year and I got so much support and so much community and there's a lot of solidarity and like folks who come out not necessarily like knowing exactly what CPEP is 
or exactly knowing about abolition, but still wanting to support people. So last year was just very positive. So I thought I would run it again this year. And it's to raise funds towards a couple of CPEP initiatives, but there's Prisoner's Justice Day on August 10th, which is acknowledging everyone who's died at the hands of the state um, while incarcerated. And it's a day of remembering that and reflecting on how prisons cause harm. And we're going to be hosting an event that day as well. It's going to be a vigil at the Human Rights Monument on Elgin. And there's going to be folks there who have been previously incarcerated, family members, and other folks just discussing and bringing awareness to PJD. So the Propagations for Abolition is going to be raising funds like predominantly for that. And it, it's just, I find plants to be a really great way to bring community because people just are so happy to like exchange plants and like a lot of the propagations I'm getting are actually from folks in the community, which is great. Just putting that call out and seeing like how many people want to be involved has been really nice. And like people who care for plants also care for justice issues and I noticed that too but I kind of want to pull on like why do you think that is? It's a lot of people in like their 20s and like early 30s. I think that like plants kind of being, I mean, given the state of the world and everything, like people aren't really having kids or even are able to really own pets. So it's like plants are kind of like the next step where I feel like Gen Z and like even millennials, we just love plants. We care for like our pets or children. I don't know how to describe that. So I think there's just that care that goes in, that daily care that empathy and that kind of connectivity that you have to like your plants. You have to be a person that respects and cares about taking care of other things and other people. At least that's what I've found. So I think that there's definitely an overlap there, I guess, in that way of just that attribute being there of caring and being an attentive person. The Gen Z thing, like you said, it's like growing up and knowing that the world is kind of on fire and that's just kind of how it was left to find. Yeah. It's nice to look around your home and your living space and still see that there are green things too. Yeah. Yeah, like seeing life around you and just, yeah. The plant community is actually very interactive and community oriented as well. Like there's so many groups on Facebook and people actively trading plants or giving their cuttings away for free. And just, it's like a love language to kind of give away your plants and trade plants. So it's just also like a very community oriented hobby, even though it can be like very individual, like having plants in your own space. And, and so tomorrow they're a big part of the fundraising. And I wanted to ask about like what the goal of the fundraising was. Yeah, so the funds will be going to Prisoners Justice Day and like honorariums towards those folks who will be speaking to compensate them for their time. And so I think that's predominantly the goal for the funds and just towards that event. And then after that, I think it's going to go towards other CPEP initiatives, depending on how much fundraising we, we really get. Yeah, other CPEP initiatives like the Kempel project. Mm. And then it's it's kind of part of what we mentioned before, just more people being engaged in conversations like this. But I was thinking about how it's plant cuttings and it's happening at a cafe. It feels like cozy and normal. And I wanted to know if you working at CPEP have found that this conversation has become a little more normalized. It definitely has. I think just 
taking up community spaces like that and just engaging in those conversations. Like I said, there's like some people who come to the event, they hear about it. Last year they heard about the event, but didn't necessarily know that much about CPEP, but we're still like willing to listen and willing to think about Prisoners Justice Day, what that means and kind of reflect a bit more on that. I just think once you really start thinking about prisons and policing, like we see it all the time, there's more like social media presence on like harm caused by police and prisons. It's very much there. And I think that it's in more spaces of conversation. So I think it's, it's important to take up community spaces and be open to having those dialogues. And sometimes it's through different things like a plant sale that bring people together. I think there's a lot of work behind it too. So I want to know from your perspective, what kind of makes it worth it? Um, I just like to feel like I can do something. It's hard to feel like you as a singular person can make effective change or support others or do something for your community. And I just found that this is the way that I can do that. I just, I was like, I know plants, I can do this. I can fundraise a bet. And even that, hopefully that makes like a small impact somewhere. And it just makes me happy. And I like all of it, like meeting people who are excited about plants and also who want to learn more about CPAP, who are already very passionate as well about abolition and want to also contribute in certain ways. That also just definitely makes it all worth it. Thank you. Thank you. That was my Zoom conversation with Emily Waters, the organizer of CPEP's Propagation for Abolition event, raising funds for Prisoners' Justice Day. The Atelier is a not-for-profit organization at St. Paul University in Ottawa. Their mission is to support social innovations, particularly within the greater Ottawa-Gatineau region. The inclusive and bilingual space offers opportunities for visibility and tools for civic engagement to fight social inequalities and oppression. Last month, award-winning author Conyer Clayton hosted a workshop for poetry writing at the Atelier. The focus was on navigating disability and mental illness through creative writing as a form of empowerment and self-exploration. One week later, on July 27th, the Atelier held a showcase for participants to read their pieces aloud to friends, family, and strangers alike. Situo's Iman Benarabe attended the showcase. She describes it as informal and welcoming. Six original poems were read aloud, and the evening was saturated with discussion and engaging comments on the vast topic of disability. Iman writes more about the Disability Justice Poetry Showcase on our website at chuo.fm news. The presence of social media is altering the way we search, scroll, and even read. CHUO's Eja Tavis has taken a closer look at the role of book talk on the reading industry. The world of publishing is undergoing a revolutionary transformation. And it's all thanks to an app we're all too familiar with, TikTok. That's right! TikTok's Book Talk, community of readers, reviewers, and authors, is taking the book industry by storm. They're reshaping the way books are marketed and consumed, and it's making waves everywhere. One remarkable aspect of Book Talk is its ability to breathe new life into old titles. Bestseller lists are seeing a resurgence of books like They Both Die at Yen by author Adam Silvera, thanks to the overwhelming support from Book Talk users. Videos with the BookTok hashtags have amassed an incredible 12.6 billion views, making it a powerhouse for launching careers and boosting authors to best-selling status. But the influence of BookTok doesn't stop here. Retailers like Barnes & Nobles are also hopping on the BookTok bandwagon. They've created specialized shelves featuring books recommended by BookTok creators, recognizing the potential of this dynamic community in meeting customer demands. However, 
As book talk's popularity rises, some deep-seated issues in the publishing industry have come to light. Creators and readers are passionate about diversifying the book world, making it more inclusive and representative. While book talk has been instrumental in promoting diverse works, concerns arise over the dominance of certain genres, particularly white romance novels. The call for more opportunities for authors of color and marginalized voices is getting louder within the book talk community. Its creators believe that addressing these issues is crucial for the long-term sustainability of the movement. Compensation is another critical matter at the heart of BookTok's evolution. A major player in the publishing industry, HarperCollins, recently faced a strike by its workers demanding better salaries and increased diversity in the workforce. This has prompted BookTok creators to reflect on their role and relationship with publishers, advocating for fair compensation for their significant impact in promoting books. Despite these challenges, the future of BookTok looks bright. The community is determined to diversify content, support marginalized voices, and find equitable compensation models. Creators like Carmen Alvarez, Marina Salvarez, and Kevin Norman are leading the charge in championing diverse reads and transforming the publishing landscape. BookTok's influence is rooted in the passion and enthusiasm of its creators and readers who continue to advocate for the promotion of diverse books and engage with young readers worldwide. This vibrant community is reshaping the future of book advertising and publishing in ways we could have never imagined. That's it for our BookTok update, everyone. Happy readings! That was CHUO's Ejitavis on BookTok as a major innovation to bookworms everywhere. For two weeks in late July and early August, city churches, museums, galleries, theaters, and heritage sites host both indoor and outdoor performances by internationally renowned artists. The performances are part of Ottawa Chamberfest, the world's largest chamber music festival. Each summer, audiences can attend over 100 concerts in the capital, with a lineup of cherished locals, living legends, and up-and-coming stars. The musical celebration draws approximately 100,000 visits per year. Today brings the conclusion of Chamberfest 2023, but next year marks a very significant milestone for the festival. I spoke with Sandy Irvin, the Marketing and Communications Manager for Ottawa Chamberfest, about the festival's upcoming 30th anniversary. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how Chamberfest went this year? Oh my goodness. I, you know, it's so interesting that you wanted a recap. It's been really successful this year. I feel like we've met so many challenges that every festival is facing getting audiences back after the plague <laughs> and having full houses again was just a thrill. We had a number of sellouts, including our most recent one with Angela Hewitt. You got to imagine three pianos on the same stage, three grand pianos, plus other instruments. We it, were so full, we sold seats that have no line of sight to the stage because people wanted to hear it that passionate. Our fans and our patrons are just incredible. And they came out in droves and we're really, really grateful. But we also had a lot of successful late night shows at La Nouvelle Seine and Saw Gallery and free daytime programming at the NAC and the and City Hall for kids and adults. We had yoga with cello two Saturdays in a row and it was just phenomenally gorgeous you know the night before you're like oh no it's raining it's gonna be disaster and then the sun comes out and it's perfect and everyone has a wonderful time we're really happy um, with the support of the community but i would be remiss if i didn't remind people that we are heading into concert series season because we run year-round 
And we've announced, we've just announced eight shows. So we have eight different chamber presentations again in our central venue, Carlton Dominion Chalmers Center. So our first one is Augustin Hadelik and Orion Weiss. They are playing Wednesday, October 11th. All our shows start at 7 p.m. It's nice. You can have an early night. Um, it's not super late, but Augustin Hadelik is a renowned violinist and he's accompanied by pianist Orion Weiss, who is also growing in his career. And it will just be a lovely mix of Beethoven and a couple of modern pieces. Um, of course, all the details are on our website, chamberfest.com. And then in November, we have Scott St. John, Rachel Mercer, who plays in the NAC, and Angela Park, and they are doing trios by Ravel, but also by Canadian composer Kevin Lau, who is moving to Ottawa this fall. So it'll be a little homecoming concert in a way, and they're releasing a new album, which is named after one of Lau's compositions, has the most beautiful name. It's Under a Veil of Stars. Wow. I know. I just... <laughs> It just chokes you right up. So that's going to be lovely. And that's November 28th. Mm -hmm. um, and then in December, we are having what we're building as a holiday extravaganza. We're calling it Let in the Light because, of course, all the cultures have a light holiday that time of year. And we're thinking about the solstice and about how the nights are so long, but the light is returning. And so it'll be a very optimistic program. It'll be a really warm celebration. And then we have a little hiatus for January. No one goes outside in January. And two shows in February. The first one is February 13th with Isabel Faust, Alexander Melnikov, and Jean-Guyen Quiras. They are a violin, piano, cello trio. And they're often billed as a European trio, but they have a secret Canadian in there. And that's Jean-Guyen Quiras. And he is a lovely cellist. Um, they're all brilliant players and we're very excited to have them. They're going to play some Brahms and some Beethoven. And I think the versatility they're playing is going to really blow people away. And then later in February, we have a young quartet making their North American debut. That is Le Consort. They are from France and they plumb the era of the Baroque. So they're not just playing the known repertoire. They're actually, even though they're very young, they're really into going through the archives and finding pieces that no one has heard for a very long time and unearthing them and bringing them to light. And I think it's going to be a really delightful program. They took Europe by storm. They've won a whole ton of prizes. And this is their first North American tour. And we're delighted to have them as part of it. And then... Um, in March, we have Hagen Quartet, and they are one of Europe's preeminent string quartets. Just an amazing group of siblings plus one. So Lucas Hagen, Veronica Hagen, Clemens Hagen, and then Rainer Schmidt. And they will be playing some wonderful repertoire. Also, there'll be a master class with Rainer Schmidt for people who are interested in studying violin. We often offer master classes either at U of O or somewhere else in the city, which gives younger players a chance to get up close and personal with someone who's at the top of their game and it's it's a real opportunity uh, for younger musicians to get that kind of exposure and a chance to listen and learn and that's a really important part of our programming yeah much much more than the festival itself like a whole lot of talented artists in there too that's I true we even have one more program two more one in april with emma nikolovska she is a macedonian canadian mezzo-soprano who's been storming through Europe and is coming back. I should be playing with Charles-Richard who of course is very well known at U of O and they will be doing some lovely duets. 
And then our final, final piece of the season is in May, May 10th, and that's Gabriela Montero and the Calidor String Quartet. They're a Californian quartet. Montero, of course, is a very well-known Venezuelan expat, and she really took the world by storm with some of her original compositions. I think everyone in the, the classical world knows her for that, but she's also really well-known as an improviser and a very lyrical player, and I think that's going to be really interesting. Of course, I'm just babbling on, but... We also do community programming for the year. Um, and I don't know if everyone knows about that. So it's not just concerts for children. We do concerts in care. Those aren't even publicized. Those are for people in hospice or in need. We also have a program with children at CHEO that we don't publicize, where we go in and play music for people who, who just need a little break from what they're going through. And in many ways, that is some of the most important programming we do. Yeah. But all our community programming, our city series, which is out in city venues, so not just City Hall, but other facilities, and our pub nights, which we call Chamber Pines, give us a chance to bring music to people where they're at. Of course, we're centered downtown a lot, but Ottawa is a sprawling city these days. We, uh, we're trying to move into neighborhoods outside the core. We're trying to move outside that ring road of the green belt and program events, smaller events outside the core of the city so that people don't always have to leave their home neighborhood to go see either classical or other music that we feel falls under our programming base. We program a lot of stuff that's folk or folk adjacent or jazz because the true definition of chamber music is not just classical music. I, I would say it's one of each instrument. So earlier this year, we programmed a concert at Saw Gallery as a late night show with banjo and flamenco guitar and traditional tabla drums. And technically that's chamber music. It was just a while, oh, and violin, of course. Uh, that was William Lamoureux. And technically that's chamber music. And it was a wild night of music and people really enjoyed it. And we love getting out into the community and programming that kind of activity as well. Mm -hmm. And and what got you involved? What made you want to be a part of it? Chamberfest? Oh, mm -hmm. Chamberfest is, um, it's not a machine, but it's a very large engine that keeps turning. We're coming up to our 30th birthday. I've only been with the festival since January. I come from the folk and jazz world, but the challenge of working with a festival this big, we've just done, we're on our 15th day of programming. That makes us longer than Blues Fest this year, which is some kind of Ottawa record, but we are one of the largest chamber festivals in North America. We have such extensive programming. So that, that challenge is really exciting. And diving in and learning about all the kinds of music has been absolutely thrilling. Hmm. I was reading that it was the largest chamber festival in the world. Um, there's some debate, all those world records, you know, but um, I, I would say we could accept that crown. <laughs> <laughs> And, and tell me, I'm kind of curious to, to people who have, you know, this is maybe new to them. What do you think brings in such a, such a large crowd? Um, I think it's the quality of the sound. The people who, as you know, working in radio, music fans of whatever stripe are passionate. They just love what they love and they want to hear it live. But because we have such good partnerships with our venues, the sound is always amazing. So when we're presenting a noon hour show, it's not just someone cracking something off it's the same quality as one of our evening shows it's in the same venue and the sound is outstanding and we're, we take great care with that and the level of performance is it's it's world class and you don't get to hear that every day but of course we also lift up local performers who are working at that level 
and and that's always a thrill. I think giving that platform to artists is is an important part of what we do that that feeds the music ecosystem and gets them up to the next level. Yeah, and and Chamberfest has been going on since 1994. So like you said, 30th birthday coming up next year. What can yes. people expect? Well, there will be as well as our, you know, regular programming during the year, there'll be some some special programming leading up to the festival. I can't give you any hints about the artistic lineup for next year for the festival because of course nothing gets announced till contracts are finalized and we're in the negotiation stage but i have been told there will be some very special elements that will be worthy of a 30th birthday i think it's it's going to be truly exciting i'm really hoping this is personally one of the things we did this year that we haven't done before was we programmed a sight reading party where local musicians and musicians who are playing at the festival got together and it's like a jam they played music from the sheet music together worked it out and it was truly delightful to see the experienced guiding the slightly less experienced so they all sounded great together and and that kind of community of play is very common in the folk world and other kinds of communities and it's nice to see it happen in the chamber world so i'm really hoping we do that again because it was a really thrilling experience for all the players wow well sandy we're going to be keeping our eye out thanks so oh, much. i appreciate that thank you that was my conversation with sandy irvin chamberfest marketing and communications manager the festival is celebrating its 30th anniversary next year so be sure to mark it off in your calendar tickets and events can be found at chamberfest.com And that's it for The Mosaic this week. Find this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week on CHUO 89.1 FM, your community radio station.